0: Hi, I'm Brianne Bennis, and this is No End in Sight, a podcast about life with chronic illness. Today, I'm talking to Hannah Olson about her experience with Lyme disease and how that led her to start Chronically Capable, a website that connects chronically ill folks with remote work opportunities. We recorded this interview about two months ago, and I think there have been a few developments since then, so I'll add those updates at the end of the episode. Before we start, here's my disclaimer. This podcast is not intended as a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Make sure you talk to your practitioner about any questions or symptoms. Okay, so to dive in, I like to start by asking, were you healthy as a kid?
1: Um, so as a kid, I was generally pretty healthy. I grew up having some throat problems um, the typical strep throat over and over got my tonsils out sometime in high school but I was a pretty generally healthy kid um, very active and involved in sports and music and lived a very hyperactive lifestyle so mm. not nothing to not no chronic illness at the time that I knew of mm-hmm.
0: yeah and then when you say so strap a bunch of times just as a chronic illness question did you take a lot of antibiotics as a kid is that something that you I thought did about? I yeah. did
1: take strep strep throat antibiotics
0: probably often, uh,
1: often probably yeah. every couple of months which may uh, or
0: may not relate to anything but it's one of those flags that you get at like functional medicine places now um okay but yeah otherwise active whatever so then was there a moment when everything
1: changed
0: or did it feel like things changed kind of slowly for you
1: so my um, symptoms really started to show up when I was in college. Um, I was a freshman at BU and started experiencing stuff with my stomach. Mm-hmm. Um, it came out in in a way of they, they were diagnosing it as abdominal migraines. I was being seen at Boston Children's Hospital. Um, so they were saying it's not inflammatory bowel disorder. It's not Crohn's. They were calling it cramping of the stomach uh-huh. uh, to a point where it was like pretty debilitating. I'd spend a few days at a time. Uh, children's um, but there was nothing that could be done for it mm-hmm. uh, so it came out as that initially and then then it was mono mm-hmm. and mono is where um, everything sort of started to unravel with the Lyme disease uh, mm-hmm. conversation but it it, it was definitely the mono that kind of set off ever having to see doctors and really dive into it mm-hmm. um, so that would be probably the time that it all started to come to a head was and that was my sophomore year of college, college. So eight, yeah around age
0: 19 yeah and so getting mono getting mono is like such a thing that happens to teenagers (laughs) but also such a thing that typically almost kicks off some of these chronic illness stories I think um was that acute like were you did you get mono from somebody that you were aware of and it at the Uh, time at least even if not now it made sense and I don't necessarily mean intimately I got it working at a summer camp from another counselor so that's the level of personal uh, question
1: (laughs) Um, I did not have, I, I was actually pretty perplexed. I had no idea where I got it from. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm not getting, I'm not getting kissed. Yeah. I don't, I didn't remember sharing a drink with anyone and no one had mono. Right. Um, I lived in a house with seven girls at the time. No one had mono and I got it really bad.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and like I said, I got my tonsils out in high school, um, but my entire throat kind of just swelled up and mm-hmm. I was, I had to leave school for two weeks, but no one knew where I got mono from. Right. So there wasn't some direct cause I wish that was the case. That'd yeah. be a cooler story, but no. No,
0: you'd be like, you person, you caused all of this. <laughs>
2: exactly. That's not how that
0: works. Okay, so mono is intense. And mono, I guess, I wonder if anyone who's listening has not had mono. Certainly everyone's heard of it, but that's mostly it. I remember it as like swollen lymph nodes. I still have my tonsils, so they were touching each other, like very swollen, very low energy, probably stuffed up. And then a it- fever. Fever. And there's no treatment for mono. It's also a component of mono because it's one of two viruses, I believe. It's either um, uh, CMV, I think, or or Epstein Barr. Yeah, Epstein
1: Barr. Yeah. And there's no there's no medication for it. Yeah, you're just supposed to ride it out. Yeah, is great. Sucks.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So after mono, that and you had already had some stomach problems, and so that kicked off. Did you recover? And then unrecover or was it kind of a you just never really kicked it and started to have new questions
1: um, I think it was the second second option um, I thought I recovered I decided to study abroad the next semester um, so I went into that definitely nervous because I was tired all the time I, I think that's really what started happening is I just never got over the tiredness anything I would do I, would, I wanted to sleep and um, and I just felt really weak. I was always, like I said, an active child. I never stopped Mm -hmm. moving ever. Um, and at this time I was just very tired and wanting to lay in bed. I didn't really want to go out and party like a normal college kid. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's kind of, it just never stopped. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I, I still to this day test positive for mono, which is pretty weird. Um, hopefully I haven't given it to anyone in the past few years, but, I don't think I still have mono, but right. that, that's the weird thing with those faulty tests is that you yeah. often test positive for mono or Epstein bar, and it's not actually that.
0: Yeah, and there are so many different, like, especially with mono, where they're like, okay, we're testing you for EBV and CMV, and we're testing you for all of the different kinds of antibodies. So one of them means that you either once had an active infection, which you already know, or it's still really high, so it's not new, but it's active. like nothing means anything just admit that you don't know what's going on um okay so then so so you did go abroad
1: i did go abroad to australia oh wow how was that i went as i went as far as you could go yeah um so yeah i mean i started off trying to do the abroad thing i was surfing at the time and really enjoying myself out there and and then it just kind of the tiredness never really went away Mm -hmm. um and the next thing that started happening was I started losing feeling in my legs. Mm. So I remember vividly I was sitting in a park in Sydney in Australia and I couldn't get up. And I remember I was sitting with a friend and I just like actually could not stand up. And she sat there with me for an hour and then finally my legs started going back to normal. But I would describe it as that sensation of when your foot falls asleep mm-hmm. uh, and you kind of try and shake it out. But it was my entire legs all the way up into my hip. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time that I remember that happening. And then from there, it was just pretty much every day my legs were falling asleep and my right arm.
0: Wow. And that's all. would a... fall
1: asleep for like an hour. Yeah. And I wouldn't be able to get up from my desk in the classroom or mm-hmm. I'd be at dinner and kind of just paralyzing.
0: Mm-hmm. I recently learned that that sensation is called paresthesia as a, an aside. Really? Yeah. I didn't. Really? I found that out on my last doctor's appointment, but. Yes. So it feels like pins and needles. And there was like a kind of numbness. So just as a point of comparison, like I get a kind of nerve pain that also falls into that category, but it's not numb. So I can still use all of my limbs. It's uncomfortable to use my arms. So it sounds like you're also having a like a, um, something is going on in addition to just the discomfort. It's like you feel a discomfort. Plus, you're not really able to move or rely on your
1: limbs. Is that right? right I think they were labeling it as neuropathy yeah yes peripheral neuropathy yeah yeah yes it's good not
0: that medical terms matter that much it's just like I believe hello listeners I believe that paresthesia is a specific kind of neuropathy so it's like when it feels like burning under the skin or um, pins and needles and then I don't know what other kinds of neuropathy could be but presumably there are others just an exciting (laughs) wormhole that I fell down recently anyway so that started happening and it started happening in your arms um did you finish out the semester abroad
1: I did I'm stubborn so I wanted to stay there um and I did end up seeing a doctor there um I knew someone who had or my boss at the time when I was living there had um, chronic illness herself. and so she was really pushing for me to go see a doctor there.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and their first thought was, "You have diabetes. Mm-hmm. Um, which was really weird because at the time, I didn't have anyone in my family with diabetes, but right after that, my cousin was diagnosed. so it was it was just kind of out of nowhere. yeah, um, And they were really thinking about giving me insulin at the time. They were mm-hmm. pretty convinced I had diabetes. So luckily, I came back to the states before um, that happened. Yeah. But diabetes was the initial thought and that,
0: process. Were they doing tests and stuff like blood? Mostly a blood test, since obviously, like yeah, blood sugar and A one C should be a major mm-hmm. factor. Were they like, this is just a strange presentation of this disease?
1: Yeah, and I think um, they kept saying that there there's options for possible false negatives or false positives. Um, so it just all was very unclear, and I think my mom at the time was like, just get back to the States, and when you're back, we'll deal with it. Yeah. And I think I had hopes that maybe it was just temporary and it wasn't going to last, um, which, of course, was not the case. But mm-hmm. I did finish out the semester and, and had a great time, but when I got back is when it all kind of
0: yeah. blew up. Yeah. And I think there's like an interesting thing about chronic illness is also that sometimes, not all the time, you really can run on adrenaline for quite a while, like... You want to be having a good time, so you ignore all of the signs that your body is telling you, and like you do have a good time for a while,
1: right? Yeah. You want to be normal. Um, yeah, I think I think that's the the big key factor here is that I, I was twenty years old at the time, and I wanted to be twenty. I, yeah. I wasn't even of legal drinking age. I was young, and I wanted to live that life. And no one wants to believe that you're different or um have to live a little slower so I just wanted to keep that going I'm still like that today yeah, so
0: totally it's just it's part so, of it yeah it's so valid okay so then you got home
1: so then I got home um and I went to my general um I wouldn't say pediatrician it's your general pract- yeah, practitioner. practitioner um and he was actually the man who delivered me <laughs> um, he's my entire family's family doctor um And so I came in and I just said, I have no idea what's wrong. This has been going on for months. You said I had mono. What's going on? Mm -hmm. And my mom had had a friend say, has Hannah gotten tested for Lyme disease? So he gave me a Lyme disease test and called me a few days later and said, it looks like it's slightly positive. I'm going to put you on two weeks of doxycycline. Mm -hmm. Um, So I did the two weeks and nothing changed and at the time things were just kind of starting to spiral and getting worse um i had this pain behind my right eye um i was tired all the time and i started kind of getting a little spacey that's when that all started mm-hmm. um i was always very sharp and i started to get a little bit like a space cadet mm-hmm. um, and so i called him back after the two weeks had passed and i said nothing it didn't work right nothing's and different he, of course um which is a common refrain i'm sure you've heard a few times from people with lyme disease is that it was it's in your head <laughs> um yeah two weeks have worked. you're fine um go see another doctor if, if that's not the case mm-hmm. and then that's when the digging started happening yeah uh, and my mom really was a great advocate for me at the time because I, I don't think i had the skills that i have now in terms of advocating for yourself mm-hmm. i think that's something you really build when, with a chronic illness um mm-hmm. and it, Definitely transpired into different aspects of my life of just being able to advocate for what I need. But at the time, I didn't have those skills. So luckily, I did have a mom who was active in trying to get to the bottom of it. Mm-hmm. Sent me to go to a Lyme specialist who did a more comprehensive test. Mm-hmm. And that's when I got the positive results for Lyme and the three co-infections.
2: Mm-hmm. And
0: was that Igenix? just from my own curiosity? Like, was your first test probably LabCorp core Quest? It's okay if you don't know. These are just...
1: First test was definitely just done in the doctor's office so yeah it probably was lab one of, core one of those and then the next is i said i don't know how to say that but i i think i
0: is is an mlm oh. with weight loss shakes
1: <laughs> what? oh you're right <laughs>
2: <laughs> it no, might
0: no. show up in your facebook feed all the time that's good that's good they are basically the same that-
1: Exactly. And my Lyme test was negative, but the three co-infections were positive. Mm -hmm. But it was showing a positive for a European strain of Lyme disease, which was very weird. Yeah.
0: So another Uh, Borrelia, basically. Right? Yes.
1: yes, And that's when all the kind of puzzle piecing started to put together. I only remembered one tick bite, which happened in Nantucket um, the summer after my freshman year of college. Mm -hmm. But then at the same time... My big symptoms were I was dropping weight really quick. Um, I told you the the sensation in my legs and the memory, mm-hmm. and I was experiencing the same symptoms as this boy who actually lived in my neighborhood in Mexico, mm-hmm. um, in high school. So, um, and he was diagnosed with the same. Our, our blood tests came back almost identical. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were, were we we still have no idea where I got bit, but that's also one of the possibilities. Is that they said it could have been some European strain mm-hmm. um, in Mexico. So. Again, like anyone who knows, it could have been when I was a child, it could have been later on. Mm -hmm. It's always going to be a mystery, but.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And then, and so then this practitioner who did the like more thorough panel with the co-infections, were they an MD?
1: So he was an MD that specialized in Lyme. He had had, I I believe, a case that had gone bad when he was early in his years as a doctor and just switched over to Lyme. Mm -hmm. And I saw him. He was a quirky man. I saw him for about a, I think about six months, and he put me on a very intense oral regime to start. Okay. And my body just could not handle it. Yeah. I was just really unable to keep down the meds, so I was getting mm. sick and dropping weight. Like, I think I lost forty pounds in the first year of, mm-hmm. of all this happening, which was unhealthy because I'm five foot ten. So yeah, I started looking a little bit like a skeleton, and yeah, and so we knew that I needed to see someone a little different who might have had some alternative methods, yeah. Yeah, and then... I switched to a doctor in Boston.
0: And then also at this time, because you mentioned you had stomach problems earlier, was your stomach still bothering you as either a part of this or in addition to this? Because I'm sure taking a lot of antibiotics when you already have, like, digestive issues would be more awful.
1: Yeah, so I'm not sure if the link... Was from the antibiotics or from my prior um, stomach issues, but I was just getting sick all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, I couldn't keep food down. I couldn't keep the pills down. Mm-hmm. I like put a towel up to my mouth mm. just to get the pills down. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure if the stomach stuff was related from prior or if it was just that the drugs to treat Lyme disease are just really strong. Yeah. It's it's crazy that we put that into our bodies and so many people. It's yeah. really
0: strong yeah. Okay. So then you found a new doctor in Boston. And how was that? What happens
1: next? <laughs> so she's been great. She, I can say she's still currently my doctor. Mm-hmm. Um, I live in Washington, D.C., but I travel back about every six weeks, hopefully, like here or there, um, to see her. And she controls all of my treatment from boston mm-hmm. um so she takes a very intense approach which in my opinion at first that I, I was very hesitant to this because i was already going through so much in my body mm-hmm. um not being able to handle the meds that the minute she said more meds i was like oh, was oh like, God, no here we go um and we tried the oral meds tried to alter them um and then in june of 2017 it was deemed that I needed to get um, a pick line,
2: mm-hmm.
1: which um, I don't know if you want to explain what that is, but it's a, an yeah. IV in my arm. Um, so that, that was placed originally on my left arm. I'm now onto my third or fourth pick line just because of,
2: mm-hmm. of
1: infection and such. Sometimes they have to be changed out, um, but it's a line that gets put into the arm and it g- gets woven up to above the heart um, and it allows you to give yourself... IV antibiotics every day mm-hmm. um which was great because it bypasses the stomach mm-hmm. so i wasn't having those stomach issues anymore
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, i it, i wasn't getting sick at all because it really wasn't it was just going straight into my bloodstream
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and so that that was the the final switch from her was that she went on to a very intense or, or IV antibiotic mm-hmm. regime gotcha
0: and so how has I guess both of them, because you said you were on the oral antibiotics, and I'm sure even if they may have been helping, the side effects were so intense that it would be difficult to parse that out, but how have your symptoms progressed over time? So that's like three years, basically, so if you got the PICC line in 2017, and you'd been doing oral antibiotics before that?
1: Yeah, so I think my official diagnosis came in May of 2015 with Lyme, and the- the IV started in 2017 mm-hmm. in June, um, and it, it's been a rocky road in the past two years or almost two years mm-hmm. with the IV. Um, while the oral antibiotics, the, the biggest problem was I wasn't getting them right because I was getting sick, so they weren't they weren't doing anything because yeah. they weren't into me. You weren't digesting um, them exactly. Um, so last year in May, I finally got the pick line out. Um, I was on it for about 11 months and my symptoms were really improving. Um, I was feeling good. I started to kind of gain that strength back. My memory was a lot sharper at the, by the time I got the pick line, I was answering like raising my hand in class and asking a question, putting it down. And then three minutes later, raising my hand and asking the same question. Yeah. I mean, I was losing my mind. Um, I had anger that I never had. And I was just really just confused all the time. I, I, I I would drive somewhere and wouldn't remember where I was driving. Um, so those symptoms really started to improve. And that was the most important thing for me because I, um, as you know, I work full time and that was really important to me is that I kept my mind sharp. Mm-hmm. Um, I care a lot about, I'm always learning and reading and trying to keep up with that. So I didn't want to lose that part of me. Yeah. So that was really starting to improve. Um, and I got to spend this past summer without a pick line, which was great because I love to paddleboard and swim. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, in October of this year, um, I started getting really bad fainting spells. Mm. So with Lyme, oftentimes people get POTS, which I don't know the official word for it, but it has to do with, do you?
0: Please? Yes, it's postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Sometimes I forget it and sometimes I know it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and my understanding of it is that it's that your heartbeat um, speeds up And it goes too fast in like a thirty second interval, I think it is. It's like that's how they measure it.
0: Yeah. It's like and also it's postural as in because you're doing the hand gesture, Mm. but as in when you (laughs) change postures. So when you become more upright, which sometimes can even be going from lying down to sitting and certainly from sitting to standing. And it occurs to me now, I don't know, did you do a tilt table test? It's okay if the answer is. I did. So I I don't think we've I've ever like directly talked about those. But yeah, this the The official diagnostic test is, like, they strap you to a table that slowly tilts upright. And, yeah, and they take Mm -hmm. incremental measurements of your heart rate and if your heart rate. I think I also want to say that it's if it jumps by more than 30 beats per minute. And many people are much more than that. So it is very uncomfortable, as you're saying. It may or may not result in fainting. But even when it doesn't, it's not great. So, yeah. like a racing heart
1: when you get up. And yeah. oftentimes you'll get dizzy because the blood is rushing to your head. Yeah. So for me, it was often getting up in the morning Yeah. Um, or getting up out of, out of bed and running to take a shower too quickly.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and and so showers I are awful was, for pots in general.
1: Definitely. Um. And I live alone in DC. So I was living in a studio apartment at the time, which was just not safe um, because I was fainting alone in the apartment. Mm-hmm. So finally, um, Insurance has been a, a real struggle this whole time, getting uh, approval for the PIC line. They don't want to pay for IV antibiotics because they don't believe that it's necessary and they think right. it's harm on your body. So luckily with the fainting, I had enough proof that I needed the PIC line again this time. Mm-hmm. So okay. it got rang through for POTS, not for, saline. for Lyme disease. For saline. And now, of course, I'm, I'm on def- different antibiotics as well, but mm-hmm. that's how they got to put it in. Mm-hmm. So I've had this PIC line since October. Um, but in October as well, when this fainting started, I found a huge tick engorged in the back of my right knee. Uh. So we're not sure if I got a double whammy or if it, I didn't get a typical bullseye, but I did get a big red mark around it. Mm-hmm. And of course I freaked out and threw it in the toilet and my doctor was like, you should have sent it to me to get tested. Yeah. Um, but I did the initial let's just get this out of my sight yeah, yeah totally. uh, so we don't know if it was a double whammy or if I just my symptoms relapse and I think a lot of people with Lyme it's just this constant you know mm-hmm. um you go through stages and remission and, and then it can come back at different points in your life whether it be you're exposed to mold or you have more increased stress in your life um diet so we we really don't know what caused this recent mm-hmm. bout. um I'm doing well I'm I'm back on the pick line and it's been about 5 or 6 months now and mm-hmm. one day at a time.
0: Yeah, totally. Um and then you mention like diet and mold and all of these other things. So I'm sure you've been down all of the rabbit holes, but are there other things that you have tried to supplement the antibiotic therapy? Like whatever that may be, I don't know. Saunas or AIP or I'm sure you can imagine the full list of things that you may
1: or may not have tried. <laughs> Yeah, so my mom's definitely very pro-alternative medicine. Yes. Um, I think she's worried about how much antibiotics um, everyone is getting with Lyme disease. Yeah.
2: It's, it's totally. really a lot
1: the body. Um, So we've tried to supplement um, over the past year or two. I, have, I do take herbs as well, a few different ones. Um, I don't really like the taste of them, so I'm kind of stubborn about it. <laughs> um, we've done the infrared sauna right now with the pickline line, I'm unable to go into the steam room or sauna just because mm. it, I sweat. Mm-hmm. Um, and the pick can't sweat. Yeah. Um, but I was before that going to the sauna. I had a gym membership, frankly, just to go to the sauna. I love yeah. the equinox for that purpose. only. Yeah. I wasn't working. Out. Um, and I mean, we've done a few different things. I've gone to like a salt cave. Um, my mom has an infrared sauna mat at the house. So when I'm home, I do that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I, my biggest thing is I just don't know. Sometimes I feel like I'm going down this rabbit hole is like, is this even real? Yeah. Um, We've gone back and forth between deciding whether or not to go to Germany. I don't know if you've heard about the offering there, Mm -mm. but there's a very, um, there's, there's positive feedback. Um, but there's a program in Germany where you can go, it's all out of pocket and you go for I believe two to three weeks and it's, um, hyperthermia treatment so they're heating your body basically from the inside out Mm -hmm. and they're saying it can kill off the line
0: interesting the
1: problem with that is that it can affect babesia and bartonella Mm -hmm. negatively so we've been really trying to focus on kicking those before the line yeah so that hopefully at some point i could make it to germany but i'm i'm a little nervous about heating my body from the inside out so yeah i just hope that it doesn't have to be this long and, and that someday i'll get the pick line out and and not have to be on drugs. But Mm -hmm. I've definitely tried a few things. The one thing I do not do is the diet, which Mm -hmm. everyone has told me is the most important thing to getting rid of Lyme is to to cut out the carbs or to cut out the gluten, the sugar, the dairy, um, because Lyme disease is said to live to feed off of it. But I'm 22 and I want to eat pizza. (laughs) And if I'm sacrificing so many parts of my life, um, in my day to day, I want to be able to eat a piece of pizza or have a glass of milk and a cookie. And that, that's just one thing that I've kept as a priority of mine. I Mm -hmm. think everyone jumps to that. And I think sometimes you have to advocate for what you need as well. If I'm going to do all this for my doctors, I need to do something for myself and that's going to be to eat what I want. Mm -hmm. And that could change. I'm hoping to kind of start to be better. Um, But yeah. I
0: mean diet is really hard and it's really personal and there are a lot of people on the internet kind of like you say who are like you have to do it exactly right if you ever want to be okay and I just don't like my my diet is definitely altered now and I'm 32 but it took me Like having some up and down health stuff and knowing, knowing that gluten wasn't a good idea. Like I did my first gluten-free diet in high school, I realized recently. So like 15 years ago, more than 15 years ago. And I didn't, I wasn't like, oh, this is a little bit helpful. I'll just never eat gluten again. I like went to college and drank beer all the time and then moved to a city and drank beer all the time. And then for me with my own body, it like got to a point where my body was like, this isn't working for you. And I was covered in eczema. But it like, I got to a point that it wasn't, it it didn't make sense anymore to try. I was not trying to balance, to be clear. To be clear, I was drinking a lot of beer, not an occasional beer. But like, I just think this stuff. But I eat dairy. Like I eat dairy, I think every day. I don't notice a problem with it. Like, I think it's so personal. And like you say, we get to pick our priorities. And I was too itchy, so I had to stop eating bread, but I still like cheese and butter, and maybe, maybe something's happening with those, and maybe that will become obvious, and I'll stop eating them, and maybe it won't. Maybe it will always be something that just isn't a big deal in my body specifically for whatever reason, and I think kind of like you say, it's hard to know even what to believe when most of the people who are writing about this and talking about this kind of stuff are like, sometimes dubiously credible and sometimes really anecdotal like right one person's story and all of a sudden you're like okay we all have to do exactly what this person did
1: i don't know what's relevant i agree and i'm very i'm a very factual person so yeah um i mean i've seen stats on it but it's something it'll hit me when i'm ready yeah. i might just be a little stubborn right now and something i'm just not going to back down on yet yeah maybe like you said it it hit you at some point when you were actually experiencing symptoms of it and yeah until that happens I'm gonna yeah what I please.
0: yeah and I think I was 28 when that happened that it was like that I was really ravaged by eczema but yeah I don't think I think it matters like I think what we put in our body matters but I think also like feeling like a human instead of a robot who does everything perfectly and then sometimes still isn't better like I don't know. Just making not me living think about it. Me. Yeah, it's not living, and it also feels like it's like you have to prove you have to prove that you're giving up everything that you care about to get better, or trying, trying as hard as possible, harder than anyone has ever tried before to get better. Like sometimes that's what it feels like with the really uh, limiting protocols, but they can be very helpful. Plenty of people are very helped by AIP, and I do eat like a pretty low carb diet, so I've become that person, I guess um anyway so diet not so much heat sometimes yeah I have like a portable infrared sauna that you could stick oh, your cool. arm out of but I feel like you st- like my head because your head sticks out the top it's like is it like a tube no it's like a little box it's like a box that zips up the front and then it has a chair just a folding chair in it it's like quilted black fabric And then your head sticks out and you look really silly, but there's little arm holes. They're like zippered arm holes so that you can take your arms out if you want. I'm gesturing a lot right now. Not even on camera, I think. (laughs) Um, But I don't know. I don't even know if the sauna makes a difference. It's just, I started using it because it was recommended. It is nice to be warm. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Um, I did notice with the steam mm -hmm. um, when I didn't have a pick line and I was on the oral antibiotics. I would go to the steam room and then I would use the towels at the Equinox at the gym
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I'd wipe my arms and black and brown stuff would become, would wow. be on the towels. And my doctor said that that's toxins. Your body's yeah. releasing toxins through your pores and your skin. That sounds kind of nasty, but yeah, it's, but... it definitely was, was clearing me out of some sort. Yeah. Um, that's... But we can't all go to a sauna every day. I mean, it would right. be nice if I could go to a steam room, but...
0: <laughs> yeah, but no, that's super interesting because that's exactly why. it's And it's hard when you start to talk about, like, toxins and stuff because there's such a spectrum of what people mean. Mm. But, like, it's real. It's real, and that's one of your body's natural detox pathways is to excrete stuff through your skin. This is just a part of the body. Um, okay, <laughs> so anyway... Um, so, are we more or less caught up to the present? Um, yeah. From your perspective? Okay. And so, right now, so you've been back on this pick line since October. And are you, have you seen an improvement since then in the pots and kind of whatever else was happening with this relapse? Like, maybe.
1: We might need to pause this and you repeat the question. I just lost mm-hmm. you for a sec. You cut it, you've got a little. Okay. Um,
0: I also choppy. just spilled water
1: okay so
0: since October so you got the new pick line in October um have you noticed an improvement has it helped with the pots first of all and then second of all how are your relapsing symptoms and how are they today
1: yeah so definitely with the pots it's been great um fluids are amazing (laughs) I mean anyone can benefit from fluids People pay now those IV doctors to come yeah. after you have a hangover to, to give yeah. you, load you up with fluid. So that's definitely been a big improvement for me. Um, there's definitely, and I think this will continue for the rest of time, you have to kind of try out different things and make adjustments constantly. Um, I was just on doxycycline for a few months, and it was making me really tired. Mm-hmm. Um, it was hard to get up in the morning to go to work, and so we cut back on the dose. We actually cut it out. And mm. then put it back on a lower dose. So th- there's constantly adjustments. But mm-hmm. I'm feeling good, um, mentally pretty clear. I'm 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 still, and I and I don't know if it's part of just the antibiotics or the part partly just the life I lead. It's very mm-hmm. fast. I'm tired often,
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, and I continue to push myself a lot, um, and I have to really work. And this is something I'm going to continue to work on. Um, moving forward is to, to take the time for yourself and again, advocate for when you need to rest.
2: Mm -hmm. Um,
1: I live very, very fast. It's I'm working. I'm with my friends. I'm out. I don't, I don't really stop. Um, and that catches up with me and I get very tired, but generally I'm, I'm doing really well. I mean, I'm working full time. Um, for the most part, I do work remotely pretty often. Mm -hmm. Um, and i'm feeling pretty clear in the mind um mm-hmm. in terms of my memory and such
0: yeah like so, right yeah. now things are working even yeah. if it takes work
1: <laughs> exactly and, and again it's just going to be to continue to keep doing it um ideally i won't have a pick line forever because it does affect your day-to-day mm-hmm. drastically mm-hmm. Um, just in terms of like showering logistics i'm hooked up about six to eight hours a day depending on the day mm-hmm. so just you know, preparing your day, going to work, making sure you have the meds with you, yeah. all the flushes, having a nurse once a week. It's a lot of stuff. And yeah. so I hopefully I don't have to deal with this that longer. Yeah. But again, I, I fear that if I get off of it, I'm going to relapse again, right. which is what I went through in October. So, you know, it's just, just giving it time and patience with my body.
0: Yeah, which is hard, <laughs> which is hard. So work, let's talk about work a little bit. So you did you graduate on time first of all college you got kind of
1: sick but how did that go i actually graduated a year early wow <laughs> i know um kind of crazy so yeah i was i was a uh, hardo about school that's a good way to put it um so i did manage to I, a lot of people and and i totally understand why people need to take time off from their life um so looking back, sometimes I wish I had mm-hmm. or I hadn't rushed it, but I just wanted to be gone, power through, and work um, and really was motivated to do that. So it kept me going. Mm-hmm. So I did, I graduated in 2017 instead of 2018, um,
2: which was good. Yeah.
1: Good yeah. for my parents. Yeah. Save some
0: money. Yeah.
1: It's all. I'll never let them live that down. Yeah.
0: You're like, it's fine. <laughs> it's a significant chunk of change, a year of tuition, basically. And then, yeah. did you start working right away? Because you, I did, had a pick line by then, right? Or you would have gotten it just after you graduated? Sounds like on that timeline. I did. Yeah.
1: So I graduated, and I think I got it like two weeks after graduation. Mm-hmm. Um, and I that summer I still had to take another class or two because I was early. Um, and right after that happened, I moved from Boston to Washington D.C. Um, and I accepted a job for at a design agency. Um, where I went into the typical, um, overworking hard, hard first job, um, with a pick line. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was definitely a life-changing experience.
0: Yeah. Difficult. I would guess. Difficult. Um, yeah, I can't imagine. I, my degree is in architecture and I actually never went into architecture. And one of the reasons is that it's like 80 hour weeks right off the bat, no matter what. And, even before I kind of recognized that something else was going on with my body, I was like, I can't do that. I can't pull all-nighters. It doesn't work. I'm in immense pain. Like, no thank you. But careers. Um right. And do you want to talk a bit about chronically capable? I can.
1: Yeah. So, yeah, actually, me too. I, I'm probably not going to go into my field either. It was hospitality. So, yeah. again, just nonstop working and – I just said I don't think I can do that, and that's a very physically present job where you have to, you know, sacrifice holidays, and mm-hmm. uh, you can't, you can't, you have to fake it till you make it if you don't feel well because right. guests are first, not you. Um, so I, 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 like I said, I went into marketing and moved to this design agency, um, and I was, I was terrified to be frank. Um, I didn't know if I was going to be able to handle the workload, um, but I also was so adamant about starting my career and I didn't want to be judged um, mm-hmm. first my years and, and looked at differently so I kept things very quiet mm-hmm. um, I, hid, I hid the pick line pretty often um, inside my shirt I didn't talk about it much and I would go into the basement bathroom and change my meds and switch them out. Um, my coworkers knew but my bosses really didn't didn't seem to care um, and I reached a point last spring that I just kind of realized, Why am I having to sacrifice my health for my career? And why is this a thing that you have to do, that you have to hide, that you can't ask for time off to go get your blood drawn, that you can't, you know, work from home if you're really just feeling weak and can't make it on the walk to work. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, again, terrified to leave my job. I had a solid job, solid income, and I didn't want to be out of work. So, I did find a job before leaving at a startup and I decided at this point I was hired um, to help with marketing and I said right off the bat I just want to be upfront. I, I wasn't sure at the time about anything of disclosure, uh, what to say if you're supposed to tell your employer, but I, I knew after this past seven months that I couldn't get into the same work environment that I was in. So I decided being upfront was my best option at preventing that mm-hmm. and if they had a problem with it. I mean, I, I gave them that opportunity to be like, you aren't the right fit.
0: Right. This um, won't work.
1: But I just didn't want to make the same mistake I made before. So I was upfront, um, upon hiring and just said, you know, I do at the time I didn't have a pick line. Like I, like I said, I got it out in May. So I just said, my Lyme disease is pretty bad. There's times where it can flare and there's the potential that I will need another pickline line in the future. Um, but my mind is clear. And I'll give you my all, and they were fully supportive, which for me was—it was this aha moment that good people do exist, and that you, if you advocate for yourself, it might work out. Mm-hmm. And so I was hired um, and spent the summer working in marketing for them, and we were building an app for college students. And college students are very hard to get to download an app, let me tell you. Uh, so we had we had some trouble. Um, with that, and we kind of reached a point where we said, you know, we're we're working on different things. Does anyone have any ideas? We all pitched a few different ideas, two of which, or one side chronic, is still being worked on as well. But I said to them, you know, in my personal experience, I've had, I've read on Facebook and in all of these support groups, and friends have told me, it's that it's very hard to manage working full time with a chronic illness. Um, And you shouldn't have to sacrifice your passions for your well-being. It just doesn't really make sense. And so I said, is there a way that we can start to work to solve this problem? So that's when Chronically Capable was born um, in September in our little office in D.C. And we launched on October 1st in accordance with National Disability Awareness Month. And we really had no idea what to expect. We (laughs) put a one-page website out. And at the time, we said, we have this job ma- matching software and let's connect people to remote work um, with a chronic illness. That was the original goal. But it was just a one page website that said, I think it said Hannah22, chronically capable of kicking Lyme disease's ass. Mm-hmm. And then it said, sign up to learn more. Yeah. And so that first week, I think our goal was let's get 100 people to sign up from Monday to Friday. And I believe we hit that goal on Monday night yeah. or Tuesday morning. And so we were like, oh boy yeah Oh, there's a and lot of people happening. who want this <laughs> yeah and my email I remember that first week I, I thought I was gonna put my phone down and I tried to like have a few moments where I'm sitting at dinner and my phone was just going off and it was people being like this is what we need and I just had so many emails of people telling me their story and saying you know I, no one's advocating for this people are advocating for disability rights but people aren't advocating for invisible disabilities in the workplace specifically and we just saw a true need here. Um, so we spent the past few months really working hard on research, um, speaking to both sides. That was really important to us, people with a chronic illness and people who are hiring
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, employees and really trying to get to the bottom of the problem before we created the perfect solution. And I don't know if there is a perfect solution We're we're working our best to find what we think is the best. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it's it's been really great. And, It's interesting because people have said, is it hard having to now work in a space where you're talking about illness, you're living illness, um, and you're hearing about it every day from strangers? And my answer is, yes, it's hard, but it's also incredibly rewarding Mm -hmm. um, to know that I'm struggling with this and I have now the capability to help other people who are struggling with this and to help myself and hopefully people like me in the future. So that it doesn't have to happen, because no one should have to sacrifice that.
2: Yeah. Um,
1: so it's been it's been a really rewarding few months. It's been hard work and it's been exhausting, but it's exciting for yeah. all of us. And and I luckily have a team that I'm the only one that I know of that has a chronic illness in the office, mm-hmm. but they've all been so excited to learn about it, um, so interested. I do a lot of the the one on one kind of interviews with people. Mm-hmm. And hearing the story, but I always come back and tell them. I always sh- share with them the emails we receive, and I've just been so excited to be around a group of people who aren't sick mm-hmm. but are really willing to learn about it and want to help these people because they understand that it's morally an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's been a really exciting pa- six months. I'd say six months. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's it's the middle of March now. Um, yeah. Time flies. Yeah. But, no, it's exciting because I think that's – well, we had a supper call about this. But also, like, I feel like it comes up so much with people that I talk to. I have talked to a few people who work full-time, but most people who I talk to don't, no surprise. And I'll, like, ask them about kind of what would an ideal working scenario look like for you. Like, that's one of my favorite questions because I do think it's such a – like, there's so much to this problem – that is not covered by the way that we, we as a culture maybe traditionally think about disability. And I think it's, it's awesome to see like, as it unfolds, see what actually people are able to try and experiment with. Because I feel like that's one of the difficulties is you don't know, and if you haven't been working for a while and you're trying to apply and ask for accessibility at the same time, like there are just so many things that make it so much more loaded, I think, than mm. we'll say other job searches. But it's exciting. It's exciting. Lots of people... I mean, there are people who can't or don't want to work because it doesn't make sense, but there are lots of people who do, obviously. And as you guys discovered when you opened up your signups, um, right. that is very cool. So what else is on my, my questions list? In general, it sounds like because you've been able to stay busy and you're living in a city and you're like fighting through it, it, you are still a part of your life kind of cuz that can be something that people talk about too is the way that chronic illness in general impacts relationships and have you found have you found that it's hard to explain to people in your life or alternatively have you bumped up very much against i'll say Lyme disease skepticism for lack of a better word
1: yeah, I think for a long time it was hard for me to talk about. I, I didn't want to be looked at differently, um, especially at first With when I first got the pick line. I didn't want anyone to know
2: mm-hmm.
1: um, because it was almost like a, a hit on my pride because I had just done so well and I wanted to be looked at the same as everyone else who was applying to jobs and about to start their career. Mm-hmm. So I kept it very private um, at first. It was my inner circle, um, my friends and my family. And, I mean, the people in my life were very supportive. Um, It was hard, though. It definitely strained a few of my personal relationships. Um, I wrote a blog a while back of how it strained relationships with people because they were thrown into roles as caregivers. Mm -hmm. Um, There were times, especially when I first got the pick line, where I had trouble bathing myself. Um, There were just certain things I couldn't do, like reach certain things on the shelf. It would hurt my arm. And I relied on certain people in my life um, to fill those roles Mm -hmm. or that role and and that became definitely a problem with certain people um but i i think generally my friends and family understood that it wasn't something i was asking for Mm -hmm. i didn't want this right um and so and and i think they felt that the more i was vocal about about it um the easier it was to handle it when i kept it inside and didn't talk about it they didn't know it was wrong and Mm -hmm if you don't ask for help or explain what you're feeling, it can come out in terms of like resentment. You can kind of snap at people. Mm-hmm. So that took me a while to figure out how, what's the best way to, how do I explain to someone that inside, like this is, these, these are the symptoms I'm feeling mm-hmm. when it could sound crazy to someone. They might be like, this girl's insane. Right. Um, so it took me a while to find the words. Um, but the more I talked about it, the more comfortable I became with it. And then obviously, um, with chronically capable, it became public. Um, right. I told my story, um, on social media, which I was always the one that said, I'm never going to be that person. Um, I didn't even go to support groups. I didn't want anything to do with, with being associated with, with a disease. Yeah. I was like, this is not like, I have so many other things going for me. I don't want to be known for my Lyme disease. Yeah. Um, and I was terrified the night before. I, I actually found an old journal post, and I was writing in it like, oh, my God, I can't believe I'm going to do this tomorrow. I I had the post planned out. I was going to post it on social media and and tell people, like, this is my reality, and this is why Chronically Capable is happening. Um, and I remember the day I did it, it was like I was started hearing from old friends, um, college classmates, old friends an old professor, um, people who I'd lost touch with just being like, holy crap, I'm so proud of you. This is amazing. Mm -hmm. Uh, I didn't even know you were going through this. Like just let me know if there's anything I can do. Um, so for me that, that it was, yes, it was validating, but it was also terrifying because now everyone knew my secret. Yeah. Um, but now five or six months in since that happened, I've I'm used to telling the story. Um, I, I have to, on a day to day basis. And so the more I do it, the more I'm comfortable with it. And I've also really gained, or I'm still working on gaining those skills of communicating with my close people in my life. Mm-hmm. Because, it, and I'm sure you've experienced this as well, it's your needs change. Yeah. Um, and your symptoms change. It's very hard to explain to someone that, yes, I'm perfect today, mm-hmm. but tomorrow I might be awful. Yeah. Um, and so just being like constantly in communication has been a really big help for me. And that's hard to do. Mm -hmm. And because you don't want to be, I I don't want to be the person who's looking for pity. I don't want to be the complaining friend. Mm -hmm. Um, But sometimes people respect you more when you're just like, yo, this is where I'm at. Here's what's happening. Here's what's happening.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's hard because one thing that it makes me think of, like you say, it, it can be hard to explain. Yeah. Today is perfect, but tomorrow might not be. And, and I think one of the reasons for that is like, People who aren't experiencing chronic illness, they want like they want the best for you, and that comes out sometimes as almost a forced positivity. Like you're great today, so you're better now. I'm so relieved. Um, and it's like it's not like that, but we need to build a language for talking about it because I'm not trying to be negative. Like no, actually, today means nothing, and I'm going to be sick and miserable forever. It's like, that's not what I'm saying when I say, yeah, it's funny. Sometimes I have really great days and sometimes they're followed by really terrible days. And like, that's the whole story. So I think I think that's what's good, too, about just more like awareness around these kinds of chronic illness is kind of telling that story. That's what I wish. Well, now I'm excited to hear about a new chronic related, chronic illness-related TV program because that's kind of what I wish – Like, Afflicted would do. I never watched Afflicted, but people were very mad about it, which is why I didn't watch it. But, like, a show that normalizes how abnormal this experience is to just show people, like, living, I think would be really helpful because there's basically no media representation of any chronic illness. I know that's not true but diabetes is almost the only one that I feel like is in the mainstream that people are really aware of and that you'll see characters and movies having this condition and like the culture understands what it means and what's happening.
1: Right. I think, and I think the conversation around chronic illness, um, it's definitely starting to develop. We see celebrities coming out and talking about their struggle. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's very positive because Mm -hmm. it, people just don't understand. And if you think about it, if you don't, know something and you don't know someone personally you're not you, you just might not know about it yeah um and so i think just having conversation around it is really positive because it's getting the idea in people's minds mm-hmm. um and people just don't know it's a problem so yeah the more we're the more that we're posting on kind of be capable and we're seeing celebrities and different nonprofits and organizations talking about it it's a topic of conversation and people are starting to kind of recognize it as yes, this is an issue. Mm-hmm. Um, granted, there's a lot of work to be done in terms of storytelling, but it's stuff like this, like this podcast and different blog posts and articles. And that's the stuff that gets people talking about it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Awareness. And, and this is like in the wake of Salma Blair at the Oscars, whenever, mm. whenever this airs, I don't think people will have forgotten about it, but as right. a like spe- specifically powerful, because it's funny as, like, a person who's now embedded in, like, chronic illness culture, I'll say, although that's a terrible sentence. But anyway, it's, like, I can name a bunch of celebrities that have chronic conditions, but Selma Blair is the only one where I feel like her – she has now shown people, like, a little bit bit of that reality compared to, like, Lady Gaga has fibromyalgia, and she's still, like, out there doing all of the stuff that she does. And I think it's awesome that – I guess we know that about her and that she's open about it, but it's also interesting because it creates, because no one sees what her flares look like or the same with, um, gosh, Selena Gomez who has lupus. Yep. It's like, no one sees those things and not like either of them. owe the public, what they look like when they're in a flare or anything. But when you know that these two apparently highly functioning people who are very successful, have a condition, then it can create like a, a false impression that anybody with that diagnosis can just power through it and like become a superstar does that make sense I don't think that's it their totally fault makes sense. I just think that's something really powerful that Selma Blair has done
1: right and we see them as superheroes because they are able to to like Lady Gaga is a badass and yeah. she's able to still film the be in the movie of the year or whatever I don't know if they yeah. won but I don't know either, I but I don't, I don't know if they want, but you know, stars warm is amazing. Yeah. Anyway. Um, and that's hard because then people are like, well, if they can do it, why can't you? Yeah. Um, but it's such it's chronic illness is one of those things where it varies so much from person to person day to day. Mm-hmm. I think hour to hour, minute to minute.
2: For yeah. Me, totally.
1: So I just think that the more people start to share the stories of the reality, the more, hmm. The public starts to understand the issue.
0: Yeah, like it gets a texture to it, which is right, good, and necessary, and helpful. Agreed. (laughs) Okay. Um. I feel like we've covered a lot of my usual topics and questions. Is there anything that we haven't covered that sticks out for you as like an important part of your experience or what you've learned about chronic illness in the culture? It's okay if the answer is no. I'm not. I'm not
1: sure. Do you okay. Do you have
0: anything you can think of? No. I mean, I guess one thing that hasn't come up this time, but it might just be because it's not a part of your experience, um, is also like. Well, you mentioned healthcare, like getting your pick line covered by insurance. There's kind of two extra things that do come up and may or may not be relevant to you. And one of them is like doctor dismissal. So when you're young and a woman and you go to a doctor, what has your experience been? Or does that map to your experience at all? And then also, like, insurance often won't cover a lot of infusion-related stuff. And have you run into any issues with that? But if neither of those spark answers, then that's okay.
1: I mean, both things do. Mm -hmm. Um, I could definitely talk a bit about... And something that's been really important to me throughout all of this has been to not bash anyone. Mm -hmm. Um, I think there's a lot of misdiagnosis around chronic illness in general. Um, and I think there's a lot of controversy around all of this. Yeah. Um, but people are entitled to have their opinions and views, although I might not agree with several of them. Um, I'm allowed to, to have my opinion on things and so are they. Um, but it was really hard for me to have the first person who saw me enter the world, Mm -hmm. um, my doctor. Um, I mean, he was the first person to lay eyes on me pretty much, Um, to then have him tell me I was crazy and that it was related to my family problems or like personal stuff going on in school. And to have that person who I always admired um, say that to me, it it was just incredibly invalidating. And I was like, I'm feeling this every single day and you're not understanding and you're writing it off. Mm -hmm. And to this day, um, we don't have a relationship Um, He still sees my parents as a doctor. Um, He knows how I feel about it. I've been very clear in letting him know after the fact, you know, Mm
2: -hmm. what
1: you did was really wrong. And I actually do have a diagnosis now and I have been being treated for this for years. Um, But it was really hard because it was that person. And I don't know if it's just because I'm stubborn, but. it it was hard because I was like, you saw me when I came into this world and now you can't see me. Yeah. And it was like, he was looking right past me and I'm like, how can't, why can't you see me? Yeah. Um, and that was really hard. And I also felt like he just thought I was dumb. And I don't know if that was because I was a sassy 19 year old girl at the time. And I was like, you're wrong. I was doing the whole, you're not paying attention. You're wrong. Yeah. And that maybe he saw me differently, but it was a very hard, um, few months when i was going through that because i just didn't i'm like i'm not crazy what's going on and yeah. one of my favorite books has actually been um bite me by ali hilfiger i'm not sure if you've read it because her story really her story really resonated with me and i'm actually hopefully going to get that tattooed on me at some point bite me because i think it's pretty pretty sassy and funny yeah um and relevant um but her her story it's tommy hilfiger's daughter she basically went crazy um with Lyme disease and reached a point where she they admitted her to a psych ward and totally like they weren't taking her seriously and she was like, test my poop. Yeah. I'm not crazy. I have something wrong with me. And she had Lyme. Um and her book was the first time I've ever read a piece of literature that I've been like, Whoa, this is exactly and I remember I sent An ebook copy to my doctor and I said listen to this book this is what you did to me yeah not as intense but you did basically um so yeah that was really hard and then um another topic that we um didn't really touch upon but sort of did was the insurance um Mm -hmm. stuff insurance has been a nightmare um you are managing an illness which takes up so much time of the day I'm working full-time, I'm 22, I have a life, I have friends, social life, and then I have my insurance life. (laughs) It's like a job on its own. Um, It started out in Massachusetts, they actually passed a bill I believe in 2016 or 2017 that if a doctor deems an IV medically necessary, then um, insurance has to cover it A pick one. And it can be any MD. Yeah, It's great to know, but it's not often taken seriously so when I first got a PICC line I was living in Boston um and seeing a doctor uh, what's it called a psychologist at the time who was behind that bill Mm -hmm. and so when she found out she was like what the heck but my first six or seven months of a PICC line was not covered by insurance my parents paid out of pocket Mm -hmm. which was a really that's a huge financial hardship for people and luckily um I had graduated early so they didn't have my college bills on top of it but mm-hmm. treatment for Lyme disease and many of these chronic illness is a college tuition on its own
2: yeah oh because yeah. you're
1: paying for the meds you're paying for the nurse you're paying for the blood tests everything is out of pocket mm-hmm. and it's to me I was just like this is so unfair you think I want this like I don't want to be doing these drugs every day I don't want to be walking around with an IV in my arm and being looked at differently and you're not going to cover it
0: yeah and I'm not being uh, offered like a another treatment that would be fully covered which i think also matters it's not like oh there's this totally acceptable thing that would be fully covered and have an equally good outcome that i'm just choosing not to do like that's not what's happening here
1: no they're just saying we're not going to pay for your treatment yeah they're not we're going to pay for this alternative method yeah. it's we're not going to pay to treat you yeah um, because the alternative method of oral meds wasn't working so right Um, It wasn't until I moved to D.C., which I thought I was on a worse insurance and didn't have that law in Massachusetts that I wasn't going to get covered. But somehow my D.C. insurance picked it up. But again, it's you know, they send me I still get denial letters in the mail today. And Mm -hmm. I call they're like, it's still registered for pot, so you're fine. But it's a constant. I have folders and folders of you know, all your insurance claims, every med I get, every time my nurse comes once a week, I've, there are so many of those, I I don't know what they're called statement of benefits Mm -hmm. that come to me. And it's just absurd. It's like, wake up. Yeah. No one's asking for this. Yeah. Um, So that's been, and that's a really hard thing when you're working on managing an illness. And luckily my financial situation, like I said, has been okay because I'm still young enough that I was kind of my parents were still helping pay for my treatment. Yeah. But many people aren't in that aren't in that situation, which is what we we've talked about before on our last call together, mm-hmm. is the problem with work and Yeah. You have to work because you have to pay for your bills, but then it's hard to work and then it's hard to manage having to pay for the bills, and so it's like what do you do? And I'm yeah. not sure if you've experienced that as well, but it's managing between managing the illness, treating the illness and trying to pay for all of this. Yeah. And the reality that
0: sometimes, depending on what you're able to get, like what kinds of jobs you're able to get, sometimes that job will be actively detrimental to your health as well. So like, if it's causing stress, if it's messing up your sleep cycle, if it's doing all this stuff, just the act of working can make you sicker. And so it's like a messed up balance of trying to survive. And I think, especially with Lyme, a lot of people just don't get treated. Like people are making these decisions all the time to they're like, yeah, there's this thing that I really want to do or with mold avoidance, probably and with CFSME and fibro, like all of the ones that don't have defined treatments, it's people going, there's this thing that I would love to try that has helped some people and I will never be able to afford it or it's going to take me a long time to afford it and I don't know what's going to happen between now and then. Like
1: Totally. Most people can't afford just the basic treatment. It's very expensive, even with insurance. It's monthly. It's the doctor's offices, and and often these specialists don't aren't covered by insurance. So you're paying out of pocket for your visits, yeah, which is several hundred dollars, and for the nurse, and it just all adds up. And to me, that's just how are you supposed to get better if you're not getting covered and can't afford to get to afford to get better. It's, yeah quite
0: crazy yeah it's upside down definitely upside down that's another intervention point i think so i think like helping people connect with jobs is really awesome and figuring out what accommodations work and then i feel like a different intervention point is like just educating doctors and insurance companies about the actual experience of chronic illness because it's missing from that world but that's a whole other thing. A whole other go
1: on. <laughs> I could go talk about that for an hour.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's a good. It's a rich space. Um, great. I think that does cover a lot. <laughs> um, I don't think I have any more questions. So I'll say thank you for talking to me. Thank you for listening to episode 26 of No End in Sight. You can find Hannah on Twitter and Instagram, ooh, Instagram at hanrosols, h-a-n-r-o-s-o-l-s. You can find chronically capable on Instagram at chronically capable and on Twitter at chronic capable. You can find this show on Instagram at No End Insight Pod with periods where the spaces should be. And you can find me on both Instagram and Twitter at bennisb, so you have uh, lots of optional social media follows for this episode. Since we recorded this episode, Hannah has had her pick line removed, and Chronically Capable has opened up signups on their website. Right now, they're focused on short-term projects that pay at least $20 an hour. I've got many more stories to share with you, so make sure you subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. As usual, don't forget that I have a small Facebook group called Chronic Hustlers for people living with chronic conditions who are self-employed. It's quiet but growing, and you'll even find a few podcast guests in the group. And finally, this podcast is supported by my cross-stitch company, Digital Artisanal. When I'm up for it, I make simple modern patterns that you'll actually want to hang in your home. I love to cross-stitch as a way to feel productive during flares when I'm stranded in front of the television. One of these days, I'm going to get to work on some new spring and summer patterns. I'd love it if you checked us out at digitalartisanal.com. Thanks for listening.